On this episode of It's a Funny Life podcast, I'll be joined by one of our own, one of our football coaches for Bootle Books Inclusion FC, Craig Callahan. Hello, Craig. Hello, mate. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Getting there, pal. Doing all right. Safe, that's buzz. Um, um, been busy lately? Doing anything? I have, mate. I'm just in work at the moment. Just, um, just doing a few bits and pieces tomorrow morning, but yeah, just can't wait till the footy returns, mate, more than anything else. Yeah, I know, I can't wait for it to return, being bored off my head. Imagine, mate, imagine. Yeah. Can you hear me all right, by the way? Yeah, is that fine? Oh, yeah, I can hear you, brilliant. So, I'm okay, pal. Right, you ready to get started? Yeah, so how's it going to work, just sort of an interview type of thing? Yeah, sort of, yeah, just ask you questions about you and personal stuff and stuff like that. Sounds good, mate, all right, I'm ready whenever. Go on. So we will start off talking about like when you were a, like when you were young, like a child. How was your how was your upbringing and your childhood? Good, mate. Um, I'm very very lucky to have two brilliant parents who sort of instill the right morals in me and so and led me through life to you know to become hopefully what other people think is a, a nice young man and someone who gives back to society. But yeah, I had I had a really happy childhood, obviously. Football's been, always been a massive part of my life. And I started playing football from I think it was maybe six or seven years of age. So as soon as I was in that, I, I always had a, a pathway through something. Yeah. yeah I had a, a very happy childhood, mate. Yeah, red or a blue? I'm a red. Good Couldn't answer. Couldn't imagine being anything else. Good answer. <laughs> Quite answer that as well. Um. So what, what uh, schools did you go to, like primary and secondary? So my primary school was... a. Uh, School called Holy Rosary, and it's changed quite a bit since I've been there. I used to, there was two sites that's now on one site. There's a juniors and the seniors together. Um, oh, yeah. when I went to Holy Rosary, we had we had a cracking a football cracking football team. With a you in minutes. it? Was I in the football team? Yeah. yeah. Of course I was, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we had a cracking school team. So that was Holy Rosary. Obviously, I stayed there until I was until I was in year six. Now went to year seven, and my senior school was Maricourt up in uh, McGull. McGull, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Few of, my, few of my mates go there. Well, when I when I went, we had again we had a cracking football team. And we we won some competitions, others we fell out of. And then I think the the biggest game we played in was that in year nine we ended up. I think we got to the Echo Cup final, which was a boss experience for I think what were I in year nine? 14, 13? 14, 13, yeah. yeah. Boss experience to play at, at a Premier League ground so early in your life and. We ended up losing. I think we lost two 0 or three 0 Um, but what what an experience that was playing footy at, at Everton and not, well. oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic, man. Absolutely loved it. But yeah, went to went to Maricourt, met most of my mates who, who I'm still mates with now through you know in senior school. So I, again, very very happy experience for me. I'm you know in in primary school and senior school. Did you grow up around Maricourt, like around that McGull area? No, I'm actually from I'm from Bazakri or Aintree. I'm on the border between the two, and I, I quite often call it Bazintree. Um, a mixture of the two. But no, I think I think the primary school that I went to it was a feeder school for Maricourt, so it was just oh, a yeah. natural progression really to go straight to Maricourt, and it was a good decision because most of my mates in Holy Rosary were going there as well. So not much too much change for me when I got into senior school. So yeah, so most people from your year went from your primary to. Maricourt. Yeah, yeah. Most of them did, yeah. And also, 
because I always played football and because I was always around different lads, a lot of the lads that I played football against in different teams, you know, they went there as well. So it was never, it, senior school was quite a happy place, as I said before, because I, I knew an awful lot of the people in my year going in and I knew a few people in the year above and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it was just a natural choice, really, to go straight to Maricourt. Yeah, yeah, and you said you were played on Goodson as well. That must have been like probably an amazing experience. Do you know what? I can't remember much of it because it was the first time I'd ever played at a professional football club's ground. And I remember, I remember consciously thinking, right, I'm going to try and take it all in. But once you're on the pitch and once you're playing for ninety minutes, it was it was scary because you had all you're looking around and you're out of your comfort zone and you see all these. You know, all the stands and all the people in the stands. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't full. There was maybe a few hundred people there, which is still still nice to play in front of. But it's, yeah. it was very intimidating. And I don't remember much of it. I, rem- I remember in the first minute or the first five minutes, I got the ball at left back. So I've always been a defender. I've always played left back or centre half. And I remember getting the ball at left back. And I remember thinking, just just get your first pass right. Just get play yourself into the game. You know, just make sure you hit your hit feet. And I spotted me left winger, mate of mine called Luke, and he, he made a run down the left wing. And I went to play the ball to him, and I've, I've miscued it completely. And so I've stayed into the middle of the park. And luckily enough, it's gone to one of our men. And it turned out, it's, it's the worst pass I've ever played, but it's also turned out to be the best pass I've ever played. It, went straight to, it, went, it never went to the man I, went, I wanted it to go to. It went straight to me, mate, AJ. And he, he took the ball and he drove forward. And I remember the crowd going, I remember the crowd like, not clapping, but there was sort of a feeling where, someone, you know, I remember um, someone saying a touchline, that was a great pass, that. And I never meant it. I, it was a big <laughs> fluke, but it was that little thing that that got me my confidence in the first five minutes because I remember thinking, right, OK, at least someone thinks I'm playing well. <laughs> yeah, how long, were the, how long were the minutes in the match? You know what? I think it must have been either 80 minutes or 90 minutes because it went on forever. It seemed to go on forever. But it must have it must have been at least eighty minutes, if not ninety. It's like so, like a full match, even though you were in school. Yeah, well, it's a lot different now. So yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later on. But I do a little bit of coaching now, and the teams that I coach, um, or, or I have coached previously, they don't have they don't play the same way that I used to play in terms of the format. So I think when I went into year seven, when you went straight into eleven aside, there was no nine aside, there was no eight aside, it was straight from, so there was nine aside, there was nine aside in year six, but you went seven aside, nine aside, straight to 11 aside, and you go, you went a lot earlier into 11 aside than you did anything else. So, it, it was, I'm sure at the time, because of that, I think I think because it was 11 aside, you might have just gone straight to 90 minutes, but I might I might be wrong on that, it might have been a little bit less. Mm, and, that's, and that's like a proper full-on professional. Was it a full pitch that you played on the full yeah, pitch? Yeah, full pitch. Full. Do you know, there's a funny thing about Goodison. So, as I said before, I'm a left-back. And when you look across the pitch, so if I was left-back and I was looking at the other left-back on the other side of the other team, you can't actually see the feet because there's like, it's like a really, really small hill on Goodison. So if I went to play a ball across the pitch, I might not, I might not be able to see, depending on where you are, where the ball actually ends up because there's a little bit of a hill. It's, it's, it's bizarre to be honest but yeah it was a full pitch and it was boss experience at the time must have been yeah it's definitely defo change now because I played on Goodison once oh did you? Did yeah you when I, I, um, I used to play for um, Everton Community right okay and uh, I played on Goodison about 
Oh, I must have been. I must have been about six or seven. And right, okay. Are you starting early then? Yeah, I started. Play- yeah, that was my first team ever in community when I was about five or six. I think that's when I started. That's when I started playing. Not a bad way to start, is it? <laughs> Not really. No. Playing for state off the bat for Everton. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so did you, did you um did you do any other sports in school? Did you enjoy any other sports when you were in like childhood? Yeah, I think the friend group that I was in, or well, now I'm still in now, I'm very lucky to have the same friends in primary school all the way through to senior school. I'm 25 now, I still have the same friends. But we've always been quite sport, quite sporty. We've always tried new things. So, yeah, I mean, cricket was always one. I'm sure you played rounders in primary school. And, oh, yeah, we still do it now. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so we still we used to play rounders, cricket, tennis, the lot. But football was definitely the main the main passion, definitely. I mean, you just couldn't... As I said, I'm still mates with, with, with the lads I'm mates with now that, that were in, I was in school with, and all we talk about is football. Everything, our whole lives revolve around football, whether it's Liverpool winning or Everton living, uh, winning, sorry. You know, it, it's just... It was always football. But yeah, t- tennis and probably probably cricket were the two biggest ones. I think that the most, the most summer sports, uh, you play them in the sun a little bit, so... During the yeah. summer holidays, we were always out doing different things. Yeah, we always used to have when we were in Pram, we always used to have like tennis and cricket clubs, like yeah. after school clubs. Yeah, and it's probably it's it's pro- probably hasn't changed too much to be fair because they're quite quite British sports, aren't they? And you know, you don't really see yeah. them in, in the likes of American or on American films, but they are quite they are quite a British sport and I think it's instilled in, in our education system that those are the sports that we play. Yeah, did you play for any other? Did you play for any other footy teams? Well, when you were a kid, I played for loads, mate. I played for loads. Um, I think when we first started. So where I'm from in Fazakli, there was there was a, a, a park called Adlam Park, and um, there was a, a club that ran out of there called Barlow's. So I think I played for for Barlow's from when I was from when I can first remember playing football, whether it was six, seven years of age. All the way up until maybe under, I don't know, under under eleven, uh, and then um, my, my dad. I know that you know my dad. For, but for those obviously were listening, oh, yeah. that John Callahan does a little bit of little boy. Does, doesn't just do a little man. bit. Does a lot of little books. Um, yeah. But you know, my, my dad always ran the football teams. Whether it was Barlow's or when we came away from Barlow's, it was Belvedere or Elmcroft Celtic. You know, there was an awful lot of teams. But I'd say my first, my first real club. Was uh, when I was about twelve, I think it was. Um, I got asked to go and play for Chester, and Chester at the time, Chester. yeah, Je- Chester FC. And at the time, I think they were, I think they were in League Two or the Conference, or they were they were around it. They were in a top club, but it was still my first taste of, of real football. I might have been a little bit younger. I might have been about ten or eleven. And it was my first real taste of of proper football. You know, you get. Get your own kit. You have to turn up early to the games. You have to do a proper warm up, and it, it was I was a boss experience. Um, it was short lived, but it was an amazing experience. And then after that, went went round the likes of had a few trials at Everton and Liverpool, but ne- nothing really ever came of it. But it was just I think all at that age, it was just all about enjoying me football with my mates and trying like to be not- as successful as possible. But the main emphasis being on enjoying it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take it. So gotta take every opportunity as it comes. Yeah, definitely that's it, me. So yeah, did you go? Did you go uni? Did you go university? No one. I never. I never ever went to university. Um, I don't know what I didn't. 
I'm probably not the best person to talk about school because I was never, I was never daft. I was never not smart, but I didn't really, and I'm sure if you speak to anyone around me, I didn't really try that hard in school. Um, I was always bright enough to get away with doing the minimum. Um, and I used to get me, I'd get the odd A, the odd B. I know it's changed now, as it? it's, it's, it's ranked in numbers now, isn't it? Like, I, it goes all the way to like an eight or a nine, doesn't it? The top right. But I, I always got like, I was always an okay student. Um, but when I got to year 11 and I had to decide what I was going to do next, I'd, I'd, I decided to go to sixth form. And I'd done, I think I'd done biology, English, PE. Uh, I think it was not wasn't PE, it was sport and IT. And they, they're full subjects that they don't really make sense when you put them all together. So I didn't really have I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do in the future. I didn't really have a I didn't have any motivation to go to sixth form, but I just went because all my mates were. And I thought, well, if all my mates are doing that, it must be the right idea. And I remember getting into I think I got into my second year or just before my second year, and I thought this isn't for me. This I thought I don't I don't think I'm going to go to university. I don't think I'm going to enjoy it. I don't think that it's the right thing for me to do. So what I done was I sat down with my dad, and I said, Dad, and, I, and my mum as well to be fair with my family, and I said, Listen, I don't want to go to university. I don't really like going to school at the moment. And it was at the time where, at sixteen, you could either carry on with further education with sixth form university. Or you could go and get a job. I think now it's different. You've got to stay in school till you're 18, don't you? I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think I've heard people in my school saying, like, do you want to get a job straight after school? Yeah. I'm not really sure. Well, I think, I think now it's changed. I think when you're 18, you, ha- so you have to stay in school till you're 18, um, whether that's through an apprenticeship or through some, some sort of education, whether it's sixth form or a college. But at the time when I was in school, you could leave at 16. Pardon me. So I left. And I went to work for my dad um, and, I, and I realised that at the time that wasn't the answer either. So I looked at what I really wanted to do and what I enjoyed and I, and I love football and, you know, I'm sure as we go through the podcast, that's going to be a bit a, a massive common theme through my life. Is yeah, I, I, I'm a massive football fan and I wasn't too bad at it and I could coach. So I turned around to my dad and I said, listen, I, th- I think I found what I want to do. I'd like to go to America and I'd like to coach in America and, and get a job over there. And I was 17 when I came up with that idea. And I, I, ne- I never came up with it on my own. I knew a few lads, family friends, who were already out in America. They were a little bit older than me, but they were doing it. Um, and I said to my dad, I said, I don't want to go to university. I don't want to go to secondary education. I want to go and get a job in something that I love doing. So I decided at the age of 17 that I was going to apply to be a football coach in America. Um, and I, when, I, when I turned 18, I got the job, I passed my driving test and I flew over to America. And when everyone else went to university, I was living in a place called New Jersey, which is just outside New York. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever regret not going uni or are you happy with what, you've, what you're doing now? I don't know. At the moment, I don't regret it. But who's to say in two or three years, I look back and go, you know what, maybe I should have went to university. But... At the moment, I don't. And the reason why I don't is because I've had an experience that not a lot of people have had. I've, went, I've had the chance to go and live abroad on my own. I didn't have any friends, any family. I had no one over there. It was a complete and utter gamble. And it worked. And I'm, I'm, what I gained in life experience and what I gained in um, 
experience of the working world and living in another country and experiencing different cultures and eating different foods for me that was far more valuable at the time and still is now than going to university and sitting in a classroom all day i think there's this um there's this myth at the moment where if you don't go to university then you're not going to get a good job or you're not going to be successful and i just like to to bust that myth and and say you know what go and do your younger years are there to go and experiment and to go and figure out what it is that you want to do with your life so to yeah. anyone listening if you if you're not cut out for university it's not the end of the world there's always other stuff out there and i think that's why i don't regret it yeah i wouldn't have i mean because you you've done a lot in coaching um, did you take your coaching badges out in America? No, I've done them over here. So when I, when I turned 16, I knew that because I was always obviously within school football and um, I always played football outside. There was always opportunities for, for coaching sort of to be a pathway. So when I was 16, I think I maybe might have been even younger than that. Just as something to do, I went and got me level one. And then once I'd got me level one, there was other things, there's other coaching badges called youth modules. So I got my youth modules, which is mainly focused around coaching kids in sport. Um, so I got them too. And but it was never with a view to coach. It was always just something to have another qualification that was, you know, on my CV that if it ever if I ever got a chance to use them, great. If it didn't, well I've lost nothing. And it, it ended up, it just it was a bit serendipitous to be fair. I just ended up falling into a job or figuring out that I wanted to be a coach. And it just so happened that I already had my coaching badges, so it fit quite well. Yeah. She did you you played did you did you I think you played for a team called Asheville. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I did. I'm a... I played for them for about half a season. Um I was I had some good good experiences at Asheville. It was a little bit different. It was Asheville from over the water, so I think it's policy. I'm not too sure actually. But um they're from over the water. So I went there. I, the reason I went there is I used to play for a team called Old Zabs, which is down in um, by Egbert, down the south end of Liverpool. And oh, yeah. the manager from Old Zabs left and he went over to manage Asheville. So he rang me one day and he said, listen, I know that you play for Old Zabs, but I'm leaving. I'm going to Asheville. Do you want to come with me? So I said, I had a good relationship with the manager, a guy called John Harkin. Still a ma- and funnily enough, he, he, had, he went back to Old Zabs in the end. Um, but I said, I had a good manager. I had a good relationship with him. So I said, you know what? Yeah, I'll come with you. And I think I think he lasted six games. But no fault of his own. I just think it didn't didn't really fit. He's a great manager, but it just didn't really fit for him. And I ended up staying because I thought it'd be easy for me to, to follow John again and, and go back to the club. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to try and play football somewhere where I don't have any friends or I don't know anyone and... I've got to build my reputation up again. So, yeah, I had some good good memories at Asheville. We had some good runs in the league, some good runs in the cup. I was only there for maybe a season or a season and a half before I went back to Old Zabs. Did, oh, did, did, was the main reason that you left because you wanted to or was it because of the manager? Um, a bit of both, really. Obviously, obviously, I had to work and it was it was difficult for me to get to training over the water two times a week and then you're playing on the, week, on the weekend. And there was an awful lot of travelling. And it just made sense at the time for me to, you know, and no disrespect to, to Asheville, but at, at the time it made sense for me to 
go back to my roots a little bit and go and play for Old Zabs. And, and you know, Old, old Zabs are, were in uh, County Common, the Premier Division. So the, the difference in standard, and sorry, Asheville were in the West Cheshire Prem. So the difference in standard wasn't a, wasn't a massive drop. I think it was the equivalent to maybe dropping down a league. But it just made sense at that time with work commitments and everything to go back to Old Zabs. Yeah. Uh, did you play with anyone that like was like me? Is like professionally playing in the professional yeah, leagues now? Yeah, played with a few people. So for a big chunk of my of my playing career and my amateur career, um, I played at a club called Formby, which Formby Football Club, which don't doesn't exist anymore. Um, unfortunately, we went under. We went, I think we went bankrupt or something happened. I was I was I was a kid at the time. I wasn't too interested. I just wanted to play football. But I think when I was 15, my dad took us up to form. We took the team that we had at, I think it was Belvedere, up to form. Um, we had we had a fantastic side there. And we had a lad who played for us at form, called Aaron McGowan, who now plays for, if my memory serves me right, plays for Kilmarnock in the Scottish Premier League. Yeah, so he played, he, he first left and went to Morecambe. Um, and he was the youngest ever player for Morecambe at the time. I don't know if it's been overtaken now. Youngest ever player at the time to make a first team appearance for Morecambe. He went from he played for Morecambe. Made, I think he made over hundred appearances in the first team. He went from Morecambe to Hamilton Hamilton Academicals up into the Scottish Premier League. Um, yeah. Played at the Ibrox. Played at Celtic's ground. Played against all the top teams. Um, and I think he, he actually captained them one for one game, up for one and two games. And he was loved at Hamilton. And then he made. Last so I think it was last summer or last season at least he made a move over to Kilmarnock and from what I can tell he's had quite a successful career up, up there so far so he's you no know, still stay in touch with him from time to time but yeah Aaron made it and then there was another another kid um who I used to be really good mates with a kid called Dom, Dominic McGivern who currently plays over in I want to say Finland or Norway one of the two and I can't recall the name. Of the team he plays for, um, I'll have, to, I'll have to try and find it out for you and get back to you. But he plays professionally over there. I think it's I think it's Norway. He plays over there, and he plays professionally over there. And you know he he actually used to play for a team called the Nike Academy. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Have you? Nike it sounds familiar. I'll probably I'll probably like if it comes in my memory. I'll probably yeah. So the remember. Nike Academy basically what Nike do is they go across across England. Um, and I think they go across Europe as well and they find the best, the most talented amateur players that haven't been signed to a club yet. Now, Dominic used to be signed to Liverpool as a kid and um, I think he spent nearly 10 years there and decided to leave and pursue other clubs. So he was playing for Formby at the time and then he went to the Nike Academy. And what Nike do is they travel all over the world and you're in this team and you're in this team for two years. I think it's from 16 to 18. And you go and play all the top clubs in the world. So my mate Dominic has played against AC Milan, PSG, Napoli. Um, he's played against Chelsea, Liverpool, the lot. He's played everyone under anyone that you can name. He's played um, for the Nike Academy, and they actually have a tournament at the end of it. And they, their team made it to the end of the tournament, and they played Barcelona under 19s at Wembley, and he actually scored the winner at Wembley against Barcelona. So, well, yeah. fantastic story to tell, and he's got some fantastic photographs of it. Um, but what an experience that is! But yeah, Dominic and Aaron, um, they're, they're the two that have, as I said before, they we went, we all, me, 
Dominic and Aaron, we all went to school together in the same year. So we have a fantastic school team, as you can imagine. And they've gone out to make a living. They've gone on to make a living out of the game, which is, which is fantastic, really. Well, on that, a friendship and probably what your other mate with the Nike Academy. Some good players knocking around. You know, hope, hopefully we get to see. Hopefully we get to see them in the, in the English game before too long, and we get to see them maybe in the Championship or, or hopefully the Premier League because they are that good. They, they really are that good, and I hope to see them there one day. But they're doing well at the moment, so you know, best wishes to them. Yeah, that'd be mad to think as well. You're just on the telly watching it, and then you just see someone you know. It's like, I can't you know what? The first time I seen Aaron, especially playing for um, Hamilton, he was playing against Chelsea. And I was like, oh, I went, I went to, I've, you know, I've stayed over in his house and I've played footy with him, and I, you know, I've, I, I know his mum and dad, and I've been to parties with him. You know, this, it, it's, it's, it's strange. You're right, it is. It's strange to see, but it's a part of life, isn't it? People, people do go on to make a living out of the game. Yeah, it's a, it's just if if you're good enough, it's just a case of if you're good enough or not. You know, to be honest, it's, it's that, and it's also how much you're willing to sacrifice. You know how much effort you're willing to put in, and to any young players out there, you know you might be the most talented player, in your school team or or your Saturday team, your Sunday team, but unless you work hard to keep developing your skills, you know you're going to get a shock when you meet other players who've been really working really really hard, and then maybe at one point they weren't as good as you, but because of their work ethic and because they work hard, they will eventually overtake you. So. Yes, they are talented and they're very talented boys, but they work really, really hard off the pitch in the gym, running, making sure they keep themselves fit, making sure they eat the right things. You know, so it's, there's a lot more that goes into being a professional football player than just being really naturally gifted. I know, yeah. Just the same with thinkers, yeah, because you'd have to, you have to put in like, because uh, most isn't like a professional team they train like near enough every single day for about two yeah, hours, and they'll do different things, you know. But most most teams, they do train four or five times a week, and it might not be as intense as a brutal book session at the weekend, and it might not be five aside all the time, go go go. It might be tactical and. If they're playing, if Liverpool, for example, are playing Manchester City at the weekend, it might be, well, this is how Manchester City set up their team, so this is how we're going to set up our team. And they might watch film, and they might sort of look at who the penalty takers are, who are going to take, who are going to take the corner kicks, things like that. But yeah, it's it's a full time job. It's I think people think of professional football players where they play on the weekend, they train through the week, and then they do whatever they like. But there's an awful lot of commitments in terms of looking after their bodies, making sure they don't. They, they do the right things, making sure they don't drink, don't drink beer or eat rubbish food. So there's an awful lot of commitment that goes into it. I know, like, yeah, in the gym, you've got to keep yourself exactly. fit all the time, eat the right things, and then you'll keep your beer healthy then. So, as you said earlier on, you, you, you take your coaching badges and you do coaching, and as well as doing the training the books, I believe you coach another kids team yeah, so as well. I'm involved with two teams at the moment, so I'm involved with obviously Beetle Books, which you're fully aware of. Um, but then I also look after. Yeah. Uh, well, we haven't looked after for a while because of coronavirus. But before all this started, I used to have an under nine team um, called under the under the club of River Juniors, who are a fantastic little side. Yeah. 
of a junior. Oh yeah, I've I've seen pictures of them because I think three of my mates have played that that team well, as well. They're, not a, mass, they're a massive club, so they've got teams all the way up from maybe not teams, but you can start playing football for them from the ages three or four in sort of nursery sessions and just an introductory to football, and up until. I think they've got an under-15 side, so they've got a wide range of football teams at River Juniors, but I, I look after the under nines, or I did before coronavirus started anyway. <laughs> so, as as why you, you train River Juniors, or yeah. did before the corona, train River Juniors under nines, and you train the Bucks. So, do you bring the same ideas across both clubs, like trade, same training sessions, or do you have you to t- make try to. Obviously, that makes it easier for me, but it's also based on, it's also based on the two teams. So every team is individual, isn't it? And then obviously inside that you've got players who are individual. So when I'm when I'm looking at setting up a coaching session for either River Juniors or the Bucks, um, I'm looking at what I think we need to work on over the course of a season. Because if I let's say for example, um, Brutal Bucks play and they get beat five 0 right, and it's and it's five goalkeeper mistakes. Well, I'm not going to go in the next session. And just work on goalkeeping because that doesn't benefit the rest of the team, does it? No. Because if you're a striker no. and you've done nothing wrong, but you know the goalkeeper needs a little bit of help, well then you're not a goalkeeper, you're a striker. Yeah. So we, I need when I look at when I sit down at the start of the season, I look at maybe three or four things that over the course of the season I'm looking to improve within a team. So I might look at Bill Bucks and I might say, well, I think the quality of our passion. Might need to be a little, we need to improve that over the course of the season. And then I might look at River Juniors and I might say something different. I might say, well, actually, our defender needs to be a little bit better. So there's two, you've looked at both teams and you've analysed them for their independent teams. So things do change across sessions depending on what the team needs, the quality of the player, um, what the players need to hear as well. So there's an awful lot of things that change, but within football the ideas pretty much stay the, stay the same it's a very simple game isn't it you know you just you get the ball you move it on and you try and put it in the big net so it, it's a very simple you game just... but I think people like to complicate it sometimes so yeah we try and keep the same ideas over we try and keep the same philosophy over all of the clubs and all the teams that we work with yeah that's sometimes yeah. the best thing to do yeah you can't don't just put everything are uh, the box. So your so your coaching sessions that you do with us, it's in our team. It's you don't always just do the same thing every single week. Like you may might do like one or two things straight on one specific thing and then you do something else, which is it learns people different types of yeah, football definitely. like play. Which is which is which is really, really good and it really oh, benefits you, people. Yeah, I think I think you know because I, I if I'm coaching, I'm looking at the coaching session from the and I try to look at it from the view of a coach. What I want from the session, what I'd like the kids to do, or what I'd like, um, what I'd like, what I'd like to get from it in terms of if I get if I'm working on passing, what I'd like at the start of the session for the for the passing to maybe be a bit rubbish, and at the end of the session, there's there's you can see some improvement there. That's what I'm after. I'm looking to get something from the session. But you've also got to look at it from the view of a player as well. If I turned around to you, Joseph, and I said, listen, for 60 minutes, you're going to stand on that cone and you're going to pass to your mate who's five yards away from you. Well, after after five minutes, that's going to get really, really boring. So 
I, I so I'm, I'm not looking people... to go into a session to make it boring because I've no doubt over the course of 60 minutes, if you were passing to your mates who's five yards away, you're going to get better and better and better at doing it, aren't you? So if you if I just say 60 minutes, stand on a cone and pass to your mate, well, it's going to get boring for the player as well. So I'm looking at a session as a coach and I'm saying, what do the players want to do? And most players, they want to play football. So how can I how can I implement the thing I'm working on into a session where the kids enjoy it or the players enjoy it? So that's that's one of the main things of and that's why I might stick on one topic for a week or two because I haven't got what I wanted out of the session. And then the second I hit it and the second to get it, that's when I move on. And that's when you're saying, you know, I might do something different the next week and the next week. And that's because I've got as a coach what I wanted from the session. What you've got out of the players, exactly. what you want exactly. them to Spot do. On. Yeah. Um, so a few years, I don't know if it's a few years ago, it was like a couple of years ago, you done a like a charity bike ride for like yeah, 11 days. Last, it was last year that, yeah? Yeah, last year. So what inspired you to actually um, do it? Probably, probably me uncle. So I'm not... So what we did was um, we cycled from... Land's End, which is the furthest southern point of the country, to the, the most northern point of the country, which is John O'Groats up in Scotland. So it was the length of the country, and it was roughly somewhere between 900 to 1,000 miles. Um, and when you asked me about my inspiration, my uncle, Chris, who has also come down to Brutal Books recently, he, he's a really keen cyclist. He's been cycling for God knows how many years. And one of his, one of his life goals has always been to be has always been to cycle from Land's End to John O'Groats. And he talked about it for years and years and years. And I'd always sort of listened to him and thought, yeah, yeah, I'd give that a go, you know. Wouldn't mind that. And last year he mentioned it and I said, you know what, Chris, let's do it. Let's just do it. Uh, and Chris was like, well, you know, we'll do it. And I said, well, tell you what, I'm gonna go and buy a bike. So I think in the space of eight weeks, I'd gone from not riding a bike at all. I could ride a bike. But I just didn't have one. I bought a bike, trained, and then eight weeks later we were down in we were down in Land's End getting ready to go with to be honest, not much preparation. But I think the motivation for it to answer your question was just it's it's been something that Chris wanted to do for a long time and he's never had anyone to do it with. And I thought it I I felt obligated to do it with him. And also I love a challenge. I I love people telling me that you shouldn't be able to do that or you can't do that. I love it because then I love going out and proving people wrong. It's just the way I am and the way our Chris is. So that was the motivating motivating factor for us. People saying, no, you can't do that or it's too long or you're not going to make it or you'll quit when, before you get to halfway. And it was sort of a grit your teeth moment and go, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. Exactly. And that, we, that was it. we were just determined to do it and nothing was going to stop us. No. How did you say was your training like just like got right going out yeah, on the bike just that, that was it, it mate. Yeah. It was as simple as that. I think as we said before, I think people overcomplicate things and they think that it's gotta be some scientific equation. And it hasn't. Just get on your bike and go. That's all we've done. I just got on my bike. I said today I'm gonna do fifty miles and I'm not gonna stop until I do fifty miles. It was that simple. It's basically just that yeah. simple get on your bike. Obviously be safe and, and you know, put your helmet on and you'd Stiff and, and take your phone with you so people know where you are. But 
I used to just go and get lost. I used to go and cycle 25 miles in one direction and cycle 25 miles back. And that was my training. You know, not didn't, didn't think about the nutrition side of it. Didn't think about whether my legs were going to be sore or whether I was going to pick up an injury. I just done it. Just went and done it. And I think that's the biggest thing. If you want to do something, go out and do it. Don't don't think about the consequences. Yeah. Just think about. Just, just go and do it. What? You know, I, I mean, if it's something like riding the bike, the consequences aren't going to be that big. It's, if anything, it's hel- it's healthy for you. What? you might your muscles might be a bit sore, you know, but just go and do it. Just go and do it. What's the worst? Scrape your knee or exactly, something. Exactly, you know. And, and, but what what's what's a scraped knee? Yeah. It's just it's going to heal eventually, isn't it? So. Yeah, it. it Exactly. About 10 seconds and it goes away then. So we're back with that. That was a, gru- a gruller, an absolute gruller over 11 days. Yeah, it was, right. was it 11 days? It was 11 days. Well, we like to say about 10 and a half because we on the 11th day, we only, we're only cycling for half a day. But yeah, it, it was 11 days and we gave ourselves, I think we gave ourselves 14 days to do it or 15 days to do it because we thought there'd be some days where you feel amazing and you can cycle 120 miles. And then there'll be other days where you sit, where you get up in the morning and your body just feels, pardon me, sorry, your body just feels destroyed. So and you can only cycle fifty miles. So we gave ourselves an extra few days, for, you know, to take into account those days where your body didn't feel so good. But you'd be surprised at, you know, what what you can do for each other. So when Chris was having his bad days, I'd try and motivate him, and when I was having my bad days, Chris would try and motivate me. And you ended up, and that's how we done it in 11 days, because we just ended up pushing each other and pushing each other and pushing each other until we got there and we were like, well, we've done that in 11 days. That was quick. And um, so, yeah, it was unbelievable. Oh, thank you very much, mate. I appreciate that. Because, I I mean, I don't use, like, can cycle, like, 900, 1,000 miles. I couldn't even cycle fucking... I couldn't even I cycle 10 know, miles. You, say that. you might cycle 10 miles at first, and then the next day you might cycle 12 miles, and then the next day you might cycle 15 miles. So it's just all about progress. Just, just keep keep chipping away at it. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but they were laying bricks every single day. And that, 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 that's what I quite I like to think of it. Like, you know, you're not going to get you know, to your end goal unless you start somewhere. You've just got the hardest part of starting, isn't it? So you've just got to start. So you might yeah, say, exactly. "Can only ride ten miles." So what? Who's, who's you know who, who's putting who's putting a downer on that? It's it's ten it's miles. You've still done it. It's hard. There's loads of people who can sit there and go, "Oh, I can do that," and they never will. But the fact that you're getting out there and doing ten miles is better than anything that anyone can tell you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been on long bike rides like with me, with me dad and that, but never really done. Never really thought about doing something yeah. that big, like. I that mean, long. it is a crazy idea, to be fair, and I don't think I'll be doing it any anytime soon. But I'd recommend to anyone listening, if there's something that you really want to do, just go and do it. Yeah. Exactly. That's don't, it. don't hold back on it. So, ask can you tell us a bit about like your journey and the challenges yeah, you face along the So, the first day is the first day is obviously. It's quite easy because you're motivated, you're excited. You, you know, it's your first day on the bike, you're nice and fresh. So we got through that first, second day, it was similar. Third day, 
you start as as you come up through the likes of Dorset and, and um, I can't think of the other counties. Quite embarrassing, I should really know. But as you come up through the south of England, anyway, people think that in in Scotland it's very um, mountainous, and they think that in the south of England it's very it's quite flat. But it's the complete opposite way because the Scots had the good sense to go round the mountains, whereas for some reason the British just went up and over the mountains. So you can imagine we're cycling through the south of England, and every second every second road is a massive hill. And it's great going up the hill. Sorry, it's great going down the hill. But then once you've gone down a hill, you've got to go back up, haven't you? Oh, and that, that was... It was physically tough, but it was more mentally tough than anything else. Because, you know, the amount of times where you've just, you've just battled a massive hill, you've got to the top of it, you feel amazing, you've sweat, you, you know, your bike's heavy because it's loaded full of all your gear. You go down this big hill, and then when you get to the bottom, there's just a, another massive hill to, to sort of to look at and to cycle up. And you're thinking, can I do that again? And daily, you're doing that maybe 20, 30 times, hill after hill after hill. So physically, it's tough, but mentally, I'd say it's tougher because to keep yourself motivated and to keep yourself going up and down those hills, that was that was one of the toughest parts for us. And, and obviously, you, your body's still getting... On those first four days, were probably they were the toughest days because your your body's still getting used to being on a bike every day. You know, the majority of, of people, we just walk around on two legs all day, or or they sit at the desks in work, or yeah. they sit at the desks in school. You know, the legs aren't constantly moving. So, and that's the same for us. We, you know, Chris and the accountants, and I, I, luckily enough, I work with my dad now, and for the majority of the day we're sitting at a desk or we're you know, we're doing we're doing things that aren't. That aren't keeping us active and then all of a sudden we've got to go from that to cycling for 10 12 hours a day and your body is just breaking down and breaking down and breaking down so those first four days they were really 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 tough i'd say now that's max i would have thought like maybe like the last four days are tough because your, your body's not well, i thought they would yeah. have been like the toughest that's, that's what we thought the day. but your body then gets used to it your body gets used to being battered and abused yeah. and it, your muscles get used to being used all of the time. So it, if anything, it get, I know this sounds daft and it, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but as you go forward and as you do more miles, your body just adapts and it gets used to it. So it gets easier. Yeah, not yeah. And I just thought, it, I me. Because I've never done that like that. I would have just probably thought the first four days would be like a walk in the park, just ride, and, and then as you get as soon as your body just yeah. goes, like starts it, and it would be like could, you could you 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 feel well, like you just could I, I not do it anymore. I thought that as well, but it was the, the other way around. Well, at least it was the other way around for us. Yeah, I Um, so did. So it was while you were out there, like middle of the country, uh, did did that like any like your mum or dad yeah, like well, come and see it out for there? For what? For so for the first when we started, um, it was just me and our Chris. We got dropped off at Land's End, and it was just me and our Chris. So we we actually we done it for charity as well. We raised some money for little books for for new kits and new balls and everything. And we ended up raising over four thousand pounds in the end, which was which was massive, and it was what? way more than we thought we'd ever raise. So, 
we, it was just me and our Chris, but because we had constant donations and constant sort of phone calls and messages and emails saying good luck from the Beetle Books community and from my parents and, you know, my sister and family and friends. And because we had that, it never felt like we were on our own. It always felt like there was someone there with us. And then once we got to Scotland, we were lucky enough that my dad got a van. And for the Scottish leg, for the last few hundred miles, my dad was actually with us, providing us a bit of support. But before that, for the whole of England, it was just me and our Chris. And, you know, it was it was fantastic because you felt like you were doing it on your own and you were really doing something that, I don't know, that not many other people would do without support. But then when we got to Scotland, it was it was quite evident that we did need that support eventually. And the difference that my dad made coming up was massive because he, what he'd do is, let's say, for example, if, if my dad wasn't there and we needed a drink, we'd have to go and stop at a shop and we'd have to lock the bikes up and that'd, that'd take time off your day. Whereas when my dad was there, we could just turn around to him and say, listen, dad, we're really thirsty. Can you run ahead? Get us a bottle of Lucasaid or a bottle of water or whatever. And as we're cycling, he can just hand it to us and we don't have to stop. So that was that was massive. That was that probably that's probably why we've done it in eleven days. In all fairness, yeah, and respect, yeah, because your dad, dad was there yeah. as well, so that obviously helps a lot as well. So you said you said you raised four four thousand pounds for for beautiful books. Did you raise for just for beautiful books, yeah, or was so it for anyone was, else in particular yeah, as well? I think it was just over four thousand pounds. I'd have to go and check, but I think that was the that was near enough the number. So we done it for what we said. Well, we were gonna do it for Beetle Books inclusion, and fifty percent of the of the donations are gonna go to Beetle Books, and then the other fifty percent we're going to go to Sefton Community Pantry, um, which is it's not it's not a food bank because I don't think they can be called a food bank, but it's a it's a, it's exactly what it says in the tin. It's a, basically a community initiative to provide vulnerable families uh, and you know and families in need with essentially whatever they need whether it's especially during lockdown maybe you've got little kids and maybe like coloring packs and coloring books or little puzzles or games or even if, if families you know obviously during covid we're all aware of how hard it struck families and especially vulnerable families and you know if you're if you've lost your job during covid and you can't afford to pay for food or pay the lecky in the house or the heating sefton community pantry can, can could help you with that so but obviously they're helping a lot more people once coronavirus hit. So their funds were, were slowly dropping down. So we thought it would be the right idea. Well, although we wanted to do this anyway, and the bike ride never started off as a charity bike ride. It was just something that we've always wanted to do. It very quickly turned into something that meant yeah. a lot more than just me and Chris completing it. It turned into helping Bootle Books and Sefton Community Pantry and trying to push some money to some really positive initiatives. Yeah, and I know the challenges that like pantries and food banks go through because they. Um, I had no Liverpool food bank on us just my recent podcast, so I know just that they've that they've suffered not just over Corona, well mostly over Corona because of the money and all the food mm. that they have to go and buy it themselves. Where they yeah. usually and it's a tough one as well, isn't it? Over Corona because I know they usually just drop it off, and they'd be grateful for it. Now it's you've got to. Got to obviously let the food quarantine for two weeks and you've got to make sure it's sanitised. There's just extra steps in there that make it a little bit harder for the likes of, you know, the Trussell Trust food banks and, you know, 
and for the community pantries, it just everything's being made a little bit more difficult, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so what? So you, what job do you have? Like, what are you working? Good question. Um, I'm not too sure. So, I'm we're very lucky that we have a family business based around um bath, body, and lifestyle products and aromatherapy products. So, the likes of shower gels and um bath bombs, body butters. We manufacture. We're a manufacturer. That's uh, so our company's called Caligo. And uh-huh. so I'm very lucky that I'm in a family business at the moment. Your dad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Does your dad, dad own that? Your dad, dad owns that business, doesn't he? It's his baby. I think he's had it for about, I don't know, maybe it's coming up on 20 years now, maybe a little bit less than 20 years. Um, but yeah, we so we've, we've always had this family business, and I thought I've, I've done different jobs in the past. I've worked, with, um, I've worked with kids with disabilities, I've worked in schools, and I just thought, I just thought, I think it was late last year that it was the time to transition over and the time to come into the family business once again. I have worked here previously in the past, but only for short stints. So I thought, 25 now, getting old, grey in my beard, it's time to uh, time to come back into the family business. Right, yeah. Do you have any more, like, like um, events planned up in the future, like any more charity? Well, it's funny you ask that. Or we've or got anything? a few planned, um, a few that I've got to keep under my hat. Well, there's one that I'm looking forward to doing where cause I, I I think the thing with charity sort of bike rides or marathons and things like that, you know, there's there's an awful lot there's an awful lot of people who do them. And so you might and a marathon is quite common, yeah. or a half marathon is quite common. So when I look at doing things for charity or when I look at things that are gonna challenge me, I look at things that no one else will do. So there's a group of there's a group of Guys, we know, and a group of ladies we know from Swansea, who are essentially what, what I like to call a sister club to Brutal Books Inclusion, called Margam Stags. Oh, I think you, you've been down there, haven't you? Just Margam Margam Stags, Stags yeah. before for the training session. Uh, yeah, we went. Our yeah. books, we went down. It's, it's an away day for you, It's a fair. It's a fair away day. It's massive, but it's miles away. Yeah, because you think Wales is not that far away exactly, from Liverpool, yeah, cool. but Swansea is like the other side of Wales, it. Isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, that's, yeah, it's well, mad. It was quite well, a long journey. Margaret Stag got in touch and said, listen, we've got a plan. They want to build a whole new sports hall and a sports arena down there. And like I've just said, they don't want to just run a marathon because everyone does a marathon. So what they proposed is that they want to run from, from Liverpool to Swansea, which I think is 170 miles. Now that that's an awful long way. Um, so if, as I said to them, I said for, for my next for my next challenge, I'd like to jump on with you and do that. So it looks like sometimes this sometime this summer, obviously when the restrictions are lifted, we're going to try and run 170 miles over 48 hours from Liverpool to Swansea to raise as much money as possible for a new sports hall or a sports arena for Margam Stags down in Swansea. So that's going to be the next one. Right. Um, so I've got no more questions. for. So thanks So thanks for taking time out of your day because I know you're probably um, quite not a busy problem, and to come pleasure. speak to me on my podcast. Don't worry about it, pal. Thank you very much.
Uh, so hopefully I see you soon. Definitely, yeah, uh, hopefully when it all opens up pretty shortly, which is uh, it's, it's around, only around the corner, isn't it? But we'll, yeah. do. we'll all be okay. Yeah, John. Planning up to open up. Can't wait for it to come back. Not a problem, my pleasure. So thanks for coming on today, Craig. Thank you very much.